Well, good morning, church. So go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 1. All right, so Acts, picking up where we left off last week, go ahead and follow along as I read from verse 9. After he, it's Jesus, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of the people who were together was about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell headfirst, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field is called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, you, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, he was added to the 11 apostles. In an article titled, Seven Nonfiction Writing Mistakes to Avoid, New York book editors recommend avoiding these seven common mistakes. Number one, not telling an actual story. So they're talking about nonfiction writing, and here's one of the things they said under that point. While you are limited to facts, you aren't limited to boring. Whatever story you write, be sure to include the basic five elements of storytelling, plot, setting, characters, conflict, theme. Second mistake to avoid, not putting effort into storytelling. Third, not knowing where to start your book. Four, not hooking them from the beginning. Five, not remembering your audience. Six, giving the reader too much information. And seven, not finding the emotional element. And I read that list and I think, I've preached sermons that fall afoul of all seven of those things, right? It's hopefully nonfiction sermons, hopefully filled with truth, but didn't pay attention to some of those things. Well, here, the nonfiction writer named Luke is writing us an historical account and he doesn't make any of those mistakes. He tells a compelling story. It is told with a, a beauty and a literary archi architecture that we saw some of that last week. We'll see more in weeks to come. 
But, but here's the thing, is if Luke submitted his book to a theologically uninformed editor, he might have received the manuscript back with this recommendation. Remove verses 12 through 26. <laughs> because what happens when you remove verses 12 through 26 is you go from strength to strength. You go from fireworks to even louder fireworks. You go from the ascension of Jesus Christ enthroned on high to the outpouring of the Spirit. So Jesus goes up, Spirit comes down, right? And so you don't have that intervening moment of details, 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 you know, changing hats and changing chairs and all of that stuff that seems not as interesting, right? So the question for us is, why? Why did Luke, under divine inspiration, connect these scenes of the ascended Christ in glory to these kinds of normal, ordinary events in the beginning of the church. So as Luke tells the story, what I hope we're gonna come away with is we're gonna get a sense of the, the joy of the Jesus movement, of the, a sense of the gravity of the Jesus movement, the thing that's about to begin, right? So the title of the message is Gladness, Gravity, and the Glory of Christ. And we'll see it in three movements, and I, I trust that these movements are gonna have some, some impact and, and tucked inside of these movements are lessons for us today as Christians. So the first movement is this, the reign of Jesus begun. The reign of Jesus begun. So verse nine in your Bible refers to the ascension of Jesus. It uses that language of Jesus being taken up into heaven. So if you're taking notes here, Luke's two volumes, so remember his first volume is the gospel according to Luke. The second volume that Luke wrote that's connected to it is the book of Acts. So Luke's two volumes pivot on the ascension. Which is to say, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you come to the end and he lets you see Jesus going up, departing back to his father. And then Luke writes volume two, puts his pen to the paper and says, let's go back to what happened in the previous episode. At the end of your previous episode, here's what happened. Jesus goes up, he lets you see it happen again as if it hadn't happened before, but he's just retelling you and you're going back to that same moment. In other words, he's doing this on purpose because everything in the book of Acts is connected to the ascended Jesus. Remember, Luke in his gospel, he says, I wrote about, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And in the book of Acts, he's basically saying, now I'm writing about all that the risen, ascended Christ continues to do through the power of his Holy Spirit and through his people the church. So we had um, a worship song, I think it was back in the 90s. It was a worship song that pretty much dominated the 90s. Uh, and, uh, and it took you through all the stages of the work of Jesus, so all of his work. So it would say, this might be familiar to you, you came from heaven to earth, you know where I'm going with this, <laughs> to show the way. I think there were hand signals involved. I'm not even gonna try that. Uh, from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. So now we've got incarnation and atonement. From the cross to the grave, there's the burial. From the grave to the sky, there is implicitly the bodily resurrection and the ascension. And then you've finished, finished the song with, Lord, I lift your name on. Right, so it finishes out with that, but it walks you through the stages of what Jesus did in his descending and his death, his atonement, his burial, his resurrection, his Ascension. So the ascension is probably, of all those turning points that we sang about in the 90s, the most neglected one, I think, in Christian teaching is the ascension. 
but it is not neglected in the New Testament. The New Testament is constantly riffing on what it means that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father over every power and authority and every name that is named and he is in charge and ruling and reigning actively. Jesus' work, get this, would be incomplete without his ascension to God's right hand. It is the finishing of the swing that was started in the glorious bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the earliest hymns of the Christian faith is right there in your Bible in Philippians chapter two. And they would sing this Christ hymn about Jesus having come and lowered himself, descended to this earth, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And then he comes and he, he talks about his suffering and his crucifixion, even to the point of death. And then it says, therefore, having descended, God has now what? Highly exalted him. So you've got the descent of Jesus in the incarnation, the crucifixion and atoning work of Jesus. And then you've got him at the end of the hymn, it crescendos into, guess where he is now? He is in heaven ruling and reigning on behalf of his people to all the nations. So Christ's ascension is the basis of Christian hope, courage, and joy. And I'm just gonna take us, I, I wish I could just read us so much passages from the New Testament, but my manuscript is already too long. It's gonna, we're gonna have a hard time coming in for a landing early enough. But, but let me just read you a couple passages as a sampling. So Hebrews talks about the ascension of Jesus after the atonement in these words. After making purification for sins, so there's the high priestly work of Jesus on the cross. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You come over into the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing this magisterial letter to the church at Ephesus and he starts the letter singing. I mean, from the word go, he is singing, and here's him singing the glory of the ascended Christ. He, God the Father, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You ever, um, you ever get discouraged as a Christian? And you know, as a Christian, what discouraged Christians do is we pray. James would say, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. So this is where discouraged Christians go. They, they go to the Lord in prayer. But here's where that can kind of um, backfire. I don't know if this has ever been experienced by you. I, it certainly has been experienced by me. So you're discouraged of heart, you go to prayer, you start to pray, and the conclusion that's in your head is, I stink at praying. <laughs> like this, this is the place I'm supposed to go for the encouragement, and all I'm discovering is, I'm not good at this. I, this doesn't feel effective. Maybe I need prayer lessons. Like how do I get better at this, right? Well, here's the thing. The ascended Jesus doesn't stink at praying. <laughs> and he ever lives, the scripture says, to make intercession for you. So your and my lack of effectiveness in prayer is abundantly compensated by 
Jesus Christ who is in the heavens at God's right hand, interceding, praying for you in ways you could never pray for yourself, cleansing even your and my imperfect prayers as they rise to the Father above. (laughs) Look, this is glorious. The ascended Jesus is getting stuff done from heaven through his spirit in his people. This is one of the things that Louis Burkhoff, who wrote a fine systematic theology many, many years ago, he was born in the late 1800s, and he's just kind of talking about this truth of the ascended Jesus. Sometimes systematic theology just kind of can be dry reading. I like reading systematic theology textbooks, but it can sometimes be dry reading. Here's Burkhoff, and he is just not dry reading. This is him applying the doctrine of the ascension to your consolation. He says, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. There's a word for quotes like that awesome. That that is glorious application of big truth for our everyday lives. It's got to be one of the greatest stanzas in all of hymnody in the history of the church. And it says this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what's, what's my option? What's my next move? When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see what? Him there (laughs) who made an end of all my sin. Christian friend, if you are on shaky ground this morning, bring your shaken soul to the ascended Christ. Bring your shaken faith to the rock of ages and find a place to stand and find somewhere to look that encourages and lifts your fallen head. The reign of Jesus begun too the awe of Israel regained. So the plan from the beginning, and God never abandoned this plan, the plan from the beginning was he would save a people for himself, the children of Abraham, and through him, through that family, blessing would come to all nations. So if Israel is going to call the nations to worship the Lord, first God is going to have to reclaim the worship of Israel. So move number one is the king is exalted. In order to regain and reclaim the worship of Israel, the king needs to be exalted. That's the ascension. We've already talked about that. So Acts 1 is a kind of Davidic enthronement scene. It is coronation day for the great and final son of David to mount his throne of the forever kingdom to the end of the ages, world without end. That's what happens in the ascension of Jesus. The son of David is on his forever throne. Nobody's gonna move him off that throne ever. And so then the question becomes, now that he's seated there in heavenly places, what's the newly installed king gonna do next? And the answer is, he's gonna gather his people into his place. He's going to announce what his rule signifies, what his administration is all about, and then he's gonna dole out gifts in abundance. That's Ephesians chapter four. He ascends on high and he starts dispersing gifts, a display of the wealth and generosity of the king. So then the question becomes, if that's what the king is gonna do now that he's installed 
on the throne in Jerusalem, how is he going to get a large enough audience to kick that whole thing off with gusto? And it would be nice if, say, hundreds of thousands of Israelites were headed to Jerusalem as we speak. What's in the irony and providence of God is exactly what's happening. Now, why are they coming to Jerusalem? They're coming to Jerusalem going through the motions. They come here at this time of year every year. It's the Feast of Pentecost. We all have to go, right? So they're singing the songs of ascents in Psalm 120 through 134. They're singing that on the way up to Jerusalem. They're going through the motions, right? But God has another plan. They're on the way for one reason, and what's really about to happen at a deeper level is God is about to regain the awe of Israel. God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. He says, he says this, watch. I'm going to bring them from the northern land. I will gather them from remote regions of the earth. The blind and the lame will be with them, along with those who are pregnant and those who are about to give birth. They will return here as a great assembly. They will come weeping, but I will bring them back with consolation. Nations, hear the word of the Lord and tell it among the far off coasts and islands. Say this, the one who scattered Israel will gather him. He will watch over him as a shepherd guards his flock. There's these ancient words through the prophet Jeremiah by which God is saying, when I'm moving in new covenant power, watch what happens. I'm gonna gather a lot of Israelites. They're gonna come from the four corners of the world to which they have been flung in exile and they're gonna stream into the city of Jerusalem. That's exactly what's happening. And then what happens next? Jeremiah says, then the nations are gonna hear. What you just saw there in Jeremiah is an outline of Acts. It's exactly what God is going to do. So we see the king is exalted and then what happens? The wayward come home. We, we know from the gospels that so much of Israel by this time had become a shell of the vibrant faith that prevailed in certain eras of Old Testament history. It's this shell of dead religion. How do you know it's a shell of dead religion? Watch Jesus in the gospels. The summary of Jesus' ministry in the gospels is what? He came to his own, and his own did what? No thanks. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. In this very city, in Jerusalem, they just executed the son of David in the city of David. The the children of Israel executed the son of David in the city of David 40 days ago. That just happened 40 days before. So just bear this in mind. Think about it for our own life and context. The challenge of the situation in first century Israel is similar in some ways, analogous in some ways to the challenge of ministry in Birmingham, Alabama. Because you can go through the motions of religion, you can know a lot of true things about God, and yet not have a heart that is alive to God. It was possible then, it's possible now. Going through the motions, hearts not alive to God. John Wesley, one of the great missionaries of history, he didn't start out that way. So he, he grew up in the 1700s. He had been reared in the faith. He grew up very religious. The language of his faith was an expectation that everybody would go out and tell the gospel and reach, uh, reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he went out and did all the stuff. I mean, I was told to do the stuff. I'm out here doing the stuff. And then he realizes while he's out here doing the stuff that his heart's not in it. His heart's not even alive to God. And so God flips the lights on Wesley would write later on in his journal, he says, my heart was strangely warmed and I started to feel the glory of the truth once for all delivered to the saints. It hadn't clicked before, but here's what he wrote in his journal right before the lights were coming on. 
January 24th, 1738, Wesley writes, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? What's going on in Acts chapter one and two is if Israel is going to convert the nations, who shall convert Israel? Wayward Israel, Israel that just killed not just a prophet, the prophet, priest, king, the redeemer, the one who had been long promised as the Messiah who's gonna convert Israel. And it's no surprise that the very first sermon in the book of Acts is Peter standing up and his opening words are, men of Israel, I'm glad you're here. This update is just hot off the press. The son of David is on his throne and it's time to start bowing. <laughs> it's time to pay him your homage, to pay him your honor and your respect. And guess what happened? 3,000 people hit their knees and said, we recognize the king of Israel is on his throne. They acknowledge the son of David, 3,000 strong, the wayward come home. There's no witness in the world without unity in the church is I think the next picture that we see in this text. There's no witness in the world without unity in the church. So before the fireworks of Pentecost get, get going here, there's this kind of work of preparation between these awesome events of the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's some practical preparation work that needs to be done in the hearts of about 120 people. This preparation work is really important. And, and what happens, the work of preparation that's going on, what is happening? It's this, united prayer is what's happening. It's not just that they're praying, Luke highlights that they're praying with a spirit of unity. You see verse 14? They all were continually united in prayer. So togetherness and unity is a really big deal in the book of Acts. They're, what they're doing as a community of faith, the Messiah people are doing things together. I'll just show you a quick sampling. Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Acts two, verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Acts 4.32, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but instead they held everything in common. So here this earliest picture of the church, the upper room is a kind of peek into the conditions that precede great moves of God. These are the conditions that precede great moves of God, not only in the book of Acts, but in subsequent church history. What are the things, the conditions that precede great moves of God? Three things, prayer, unity, and humility. That's why Martin Luther would frequently say, grace is like water, it runs to the lowest place. And so here they are, getting low before God in prayer and in unity and the water of God's grace comes and finds them. We're gonna see that there's a sense of joy in the fellowship of believers throughout the book of Acts. The first time we see that joy is right after the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's not highlighted in Luke's volume two in the book of Acts, but Luke in volume one, when he describes the same event of the ascension, he adds a detail at the end of his gospel that isn't found in the book of Acts. And here's what he said happened. While Jesus was blessing them, 
He left them and was carried up into heaven. There's the ascension. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, those last two words of that verse aren't what I expected. That's the last time they'll ever see him. They've walked with it. He's the most compelling human being they've ever been around, and now he's gone. So they're going to walk by faith and not by sight from now on. They've been walking by sight. Now they're going to walk by faith. They've just said goodbye. Like, I would be a wreck. I'm going to be, I'm dropping my daughter off at college tonight. I'm going to be a wreck. Like, this is Jesus leaving planet Earth, right? And they leave with great joy. Why? Because they believed Jesus when he said, trust me, I go away. It gets better for you. Because from heaven, I'm going to pour out my spirit on the church and all kinds of stuff is going to happen. And they leave their joys pent up in their hearts. The culture of Christian fellowship after the ascension is joy. Now that should be the culture, that should be the ethos, that should be pumping through the system here when we're together, where you're together with small groups. There should be joy all over. Look, tonight, Faith Family Gathering, hope all of our members can be there tonight. The environment tonight should be joy, joy in what God is doing in our church, joy in being together. It's a mark of the church. So you see the reign of Jesus begun, the awe of Israel regained, and finally the plan of God fulfilled. Plan of God fulfilled. Can I bring this in for a landing? Three truths for us to consider. First, God's purpose transcends disloyalty. God's purpose transcends disloyalty. It accounts for disloyalty. Look, look at verse 15 with me. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120. And Peter said, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, that's a mouthful, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Notice what Peter does there because it's kind of shocking. He's saying the purpose of God transcended even this tragic event. He's linking the defection of Judas to the fulfillment of scripture. He's saying, let me quote a couple passages where we could see this pattern happening in the Old Testament. And he quotes from the Psalms and connects real events that happened in the life of David and connects those to their ultimate fulfillment by way of analogy to the life of David's greatest son. And in essence, Peter is saying, don't be shocked that someone close to the Lord betrayed him in the end. Judas was fulfilling scriptural patterns of betrayal. We could have seen this coming. Might not have known it was him, but we're not shocked that this happened. For an understand, the sovereignty of God is able to account for the sin of man. The sovereignty of God is able to account for the betrayal, defection, apostasy of men. Not only that, the sins of men that are aimed at the destruction of God become serviceable to the purposes of God. That's, that's, the, that's the awesomeness of what God is able to do. Despite the best efforts of sinful men, God's purpose still rides ahead, their best intentions notwithstanding. You read Psalm 2 and it says all the kings and all the powerful people of the earth are, are working together. It's a it's a conspiracy to overthrow the anointed one. And what's the next sound you hear in Psalm 2? You hear God laughing. He's not afraid. His sovereignty accounts for this right here. Here we see something of the gravity. So we talk about gladness. 
Here we're talking about gravity, the gravity of sin and the glory of Christ. God's purpose transcends human disloyalty. So what does this tragic story of Judas urge us to do? Here's the point, cling to him in faithfulness. Cling to him in faithfulness. One commentator called Peter's recap of the fate of Judas anti-biography. So the first example of a follower of Jesus in Acts going the wrong way, turning away from Jesus and falling under judgment. The next one that's up will be Ananias and Sapphira. So we're gonna see this pattern happen in other places. You think about our own cultural moment. So there are a lot of deconversions that are happening today. It is, um, it's trendy to say, I used to follow Jesus. Your, Your number of social media followers goes up now when you say, I used to follow Jesus. And so often when the enemy takes people down, the way that he goes about it is is he loosens your attachment to people who love Jesus. Right, so now he's got you out there on your own. Now you're isolated, now you're in exile. He loosens your attachment, makes the church seem lame and the world seem awesome. And then the enemy comes out with a full complement of a bag of tricks. He comes out with everything, right? Cynical perspectives, TikTok videos, temptations, pleasures, all of that is trotted out in front of you. Now that you're isolated, he's trotted out in front of you to confirm your new direction moving further and further away from God. Friends, understand, listen, yes, yes, Christianity can be like the brochure that overpromises and underpays, underdelivers, if you only try it on until it lets you down. You put one foot in and you got your eye on kind of FOMO style, always looking out the back window for, for some other option, some exit ramp, any exit ramp. Uh, I'm interested in any of the options to exit, right? Can I talk about a middle way for us as the church? So let's, let's not dunk on people who are in the process of losing their faith. Let's not suffocate people who are in the process of losing their faith. Why? Because, for all kinds of reasons, but that attitude might be used by the enemy to drive them deeper and deeper into exile. Further and further and further out. And that's not what we want. What we want is winsome witness. Winsome witness. Patient care. Loving relationships, so so that's one side. Don't dunk on people who are in the process of losing their faith, but here's the other side. Don't lionize it. Understand what that particular journey is, namely the greatest tragedy imaginable. Apostasy is not noble. Disloyalty to the Lord is not a virtue. Cynicism about God's character is not the essence of humility. It's not the essence of authenticity. It's a place we can find ourselves in So let's just be real about that. Let's be real about it. It's a place we can find ourselves in, but it's not a place to make camp. Let's not stop here. Let's not lionize it as if this is the ultimate place of authenticity. No, that's not where you thrive. You'll never flourish there. Jesus is the prince of life. Coming to him, you get life. Walking away from him, you don't get life. You get the other option. Don't walk away. You want to find a life worth commending? Don't commend those who are walking away from Christ, you want to find a life worth commending, find someone who has lived their whole life trusting 
Jesus. Have you seen people like that? Have you seen people finish well? I have. I'm, I'm thinking of them right now. Names in my head right now. People, some of, some of you know the people I'm thinking about right now. Wasn't it beautiful? Wasn't it beautiful? The way they lived. The way they persevered. Even, even in trials, even with cancer, they just kept moving forward, trusting Jesus, one foot in front of the other, and they broke through, maybe stumbled across the tape, but they finished. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's great allegory of the Christian life, and he tells a story about how believers die in the Lord, and he says they crossed the River Jordan, and the trumpet sounded on the other side. That's commendable. <laughs> That's beautiful. Goals, Right? God's purpose transcends disloyalty. God's purpose fills the gaps. So they need to fill a gap. They need to replace Judas. There's, there's 12 chairs and one of them is empty. And so anybody know what they did? They cast lots, right? So this has Old Testament precedent. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap and it's every decision of the Lord. So since we haven't done a lot of lot casting and we didn't do that for our elder process, right? We're not familiar with lot casting and what that means. Derek Thomas describes it in his commentary this way. Here's how it went down. Writing the names of the two men on pieces of stone or wood, placing them in a garment or container, shaking it and without looking, drawing one out. And this was held to bear the endorsement of God upon it. So they viewed God as providentially involved in this, this uh, well-trodden process of discovering God's providential plan. So I just have to pause here because I think there is this kind of, this might be dark humor on my part, but um, if you're anything like me, like I've never met an underdog I don't want to advocate for, Right, I'm, I'm pulling for the underdog. If, there's a, if I don't care about which team wins, I want the team to win that nobody says can win. Right, so in my case, I read the story and my heart just goes out to the other guy, right? It's like, bro, you were, you were that close. I mean, there were only two rocks in the sack. And uh, this is no small thing. I mean, this is 12 apostles, right? And this is, there are 12 thrones in the new heavens and the new earth. In the moment Matthias was chosen, Judas's name was scratched out and they wrote Matthias, not your name. I'm so sorry. Like, uh, you were great. I mean, you were awesome too. And you just want to go over and give that guy a fist bump Matthias and give this guy a hug because he probably cried all afternoon. And this is a big deal. Just bro, bring it in. <laughs> and yeah, so this is reading into the silence here. But for what it's worth, it seems that Joseph trusted the process. He didn't say, you know, casting lots, why don't we just pay rock, rock, paper, scissors, right? Is that what we're gonna do? He didn't have this attitude. There's no evidence that he's disrupting the unity of the church. You know, sadly, we're not even sure what to call this guy. You know, Luke is like, he's Justice, he's Joseph, he's Barsabbas. It's like, this guy is forever immortalized in the pages of Acts as the guy whose name we can't remember, you know? <laughs> you gotta feel for him. But here, here's the thing. They had a process, they trusted the process, and they prayed that God would direct the process and use it. Imperfect process in some ways. You never see this process occur again in the book of Acts. This is the only time. And yet they prayed and said, Lord, you've used this process before. Use it again. 
What's the principle for us? Wait and trust him through prayer. Think about it in principle this way. God is still the God who fills the gaps. God has ways of accounting for glaring absences in our lives. So, so maybe you're looking at your life even this morning and you're, you could say honestly to the Lord, something's missing and that something is extremely important. I, I need that gap to be filled. And so much of how our ancestors of the faith expressed their trust in God was essentially to say, God, I trust you with these gaps. I, tr- I trust you. You can compensate for where I'm weak. You can compensate for what's absent in this situation. Fill up what's lacking. That's so many of the prayers. Just fill up what's lacking. There's a hole here, and I can't make it right. I love the ordinary stories that are here in Acts chapter one because it allows us to see the ascended Christ quietly at work. How is he quietly at work? As unsuspecting Israelites are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and he's about to wake them up. Quietly at work as the lot is cast and a stone is drawn out of a sack and it has the name of Matthias on it, and he's quietly at work. Quietly at work as he's filling the gaps after Judas has done the unthinkable. So if those theologically uninformed editors were gonna take out verses 12 to 26, we miss all of that. All we see is pyrotechnics and fireworks, but we don't see God quietly at work in the ordinary details and processes of a people trying to move forward. D.G. Barnhouse, a preacher from the past, told a story about a man who operated an ice house and he lost an extremely expensive watch in the sawdust and so he offered this great reward for anybody who could come in and, and help him find it. And so this group came in, they combed the sawdust for hours, no success. They went on a lunch break and a boy walks in. He saw the reward was offered for finding the watch. Boy walks in, looks around, does some things, comes out with the watch. And they asked the boy, how'd you find the watch? And here's what he said. I just lay down in the sawdust and listened. And finally I heard the watch ticking. That's the way God is at work in Acts chapter one. It's, it's this, the quiet mode and you listen carefully for it and you see the hidden hand of providence guiding the church forward. And the truth that comes through softly but compellingly is this. Nothing in the believer's life can derail the purpose of God. You can face this week with peace in your heart because Jesus Christ is on his throne at the right hand of God. And what is he doing from there? He is quietly working in the gladness and in the gravity for his glory and for our good.